I've always thought the Christian apologist has two complementary tasks to perform today. The one, of course, is to expound and defend the Christian faith, and the other is to demythologize contemporary secularism. I think the two duties are inseparable, and I've been intermittently involved in the double campaign for a long time. I don't know whether we are readier today than we were two or three decades ago to question how far the church ought to ally itself with the drift of things in our contemporary Western civilization. I recall in the mid-60s going to give a series of lectures at St. Augustine's College, Canterbury, which at that time ran courses for clergy from, drawn from all over the Anglican Communion. This was a period when radical theologians were declaring that man had come of age and could look after himself, and the church ought to be in the forefront of freeing him from outworn inhibitions and traditions. Well, my reputation as a critic of such trends had seemingly gone to Canterbury before me. And on the first night at dinner, an aggressive Canadian leaned across the table and exclaimed, I think our modern cities are wonderful. And the motorways, those concrete overpasses, there's God for you. Well, after dinner, a friendly soul took me aside to explain this outburst. I must warn you, he said, that there's a little knot of chaps here who are out for your blood. Well, indeed, it proved the liveliest series of lectures I'd ever given. So much so that when my chairman, Kenneth Cragg, introduced me for my third and final lecture, he abandoned all the usual formalities. Instead, he just rang a bell and shouted, Round three! <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it won't be quite the same today. Well, the title given to my talk, The Christian in a Secular Age, does, I think, just invite... Um, a little bit of comment. Um, uh, th this use of the word secular, I'm going to take as my starting point. Uh, for there's an odd gap in connotation between the word secular and the word secularism. It's rather a wide one. I mean, you don't generally have to make a connotational leap when you move from an adjective to its corresponding abstract noun. I mean, if you consider the close relationship, say, between Christian and Christianity, or between vegetarian and vegetarianism. Well, now, the relationship between secular and secularism is not comparable. It's more like the uncomfortable relationship between the neutral word race and the loaded word racism. Well, when I checked up in the dictionary, I found that secular means simply of or pertaining to this world. There's nothing to alarm Christians there. Indeed, of course, the word was once applied regularly to clergy running parishes as opposed to clergy living in monastic houses, the secular clergy and the religious clergy. Plainly, the word has no pejorative overtones in itself. It opposes this worldly concerns to other worldly concerns. Secular is certainly contrasted with religious but only in the sense that digging a garden is one thing and praying is another thing. And secular is certainly not opposed to Christians, since presumably the Christian 
might dig or pray with equal regularity. You all have your secular avocations as well as your religious practices, and both are proper and needful. Now, the dictionary definition of secularism is the doctrine that morality should be based solely on regard to the well-being of mankind in the present life to the exclusion of all considerations drawn from a belief in God or in a future state. And, of course, secularist is defined as an adherent of secularism. So secular, a purely neutral term, while secularism represents a view of life that challenges Christianity head-on, for it excludes all considerations drawn from a belief in God or in a future state. So, the secular, no challenge. It's the sphere of activity in which most Christians operate most of their lives. Printing a book is a secular activity, whether the book is a comic novel or the Bible. Oops, we be confused about this. Our Lord was a carpenter, and carpentry is in itself a secular activity, whether the artifact manufactured be a dining room table or a pulpit. One, of course, is put to a secular the other to a religious use. So engaging in secular activities doesn't make anyone a secularist, just as eating a meal of cheese and salad won't make you a vegetarian. Indeed, living on eggs and cheese and salad for a year won't make you a vegetarian unless you hold the view that the exclusion of meat from diet is a matter of principle. Vegetarianism excludes meat as a matter of principle, and secularism excludes the religious dimension as a matter of principle. So here we have a total collision between Christianity and secularism. Involvement in secular activities doesn't commit you to secularism. Our linguistic usage is a, li a little odd in this respect, perhaps. You only need to commit one murder to be a murderer. Yet no accumulation of human activities will necessarily turn you into a humanist. You only need to tell one lie to become a liar. But telling the truth one day will not turn you into an honest man. I'm just trying by a few examples to clear the verbal air and to put this word secularism in the company in which it belongs. For it defines a kind of faith and a rather restrictive one, as we shall see. The ordinary meat-eater can't be accused of inconsistency if he's caught one day eating a salad. But the vegetarianism, vegetarian loses his right to the label if he's caught eating a steak. Drinking a glass of Coke will not turn an alcoholic into a teetotaler. But drinking a single glass of beer will finish a man off as a teetotaler. Saying one prayer may not make you a Christian, but it will finish you off as a bona fide secularist. And this is the important point. The Christian indulges in secular activities year after year without thus necessarily compromising his commitment to Christianity. But a man cannot say a single prayer without compromising his commitment to secularism. In short, like teetotalism, secularism is a noun whose, connotative, whose connotation involves a crucial exclusion, 
you can define the secularist position only in negatives. There's no life except this life in time. There's no order of being except this which we explore with our senses and our instruments. There's no condition of well-being except that of healthy and comfortable life in time. No God to be worshipped, no God to be propitiated, no reward to be sought, no punishment to be avoided except those which derive from earthly authority. No law to be obeyed except those which earthly authority imposes or earthly prudence recommends. Such are the tenets of secularism. Now, no Christian thinks it possible to live without secular activities. No Christian wants to abolish them. But secularism, by definition, excludes Christian faith and practice. We Christians are not trying to prohibit any activity on the grounds that it is secular. While secularists are committed to prohibit every activity that is religious, Christianity wants to claim the secular. Secularism wants to abolish Christianity. I make the point like this for this reason. <coughs> Who are the excluders? Who are the prohibitionists? prohibitionists? We Christians who do not dispute the validity of secular activities and motives, but who say we want something else. Or secularists who dispute the validity of all religious activity and motivation. Who are the excluders, the bearers of fetters, the shutters off of avenues, the closers of minds? We have had too much woolly thinking on this issue. We've had too much talk about the Christian attitude to secularism and not enough about the secularist attitude to Christianity. Exponents of secularism will talk as though Christian teaching closes off options while their teaching opens doors and the very reverse is true. They talk as though Christianity is restrictive while secularism is open-minded. It is nonsense. Secularism is by definition so closed-minded that it is trying to shut off from the minds of contemporary men and women the faith, the hope, the vision that stabilized and enriched the lives of the generations who built our civilization and gave us our culture. In fact, secularism is an attempt to fetter, to limit, and to prohibit. It is, I'm afraid, a new form of slavery. For, as we Christians see it, limitedly secular motivation towards keeping fit, Making money, living comfortably, enjoying food, drink, sex, entertainment, travel, family life and sociability. These consist in pursuing a sense of well-being appropriate for intelligent animals, but not for God's children. And indeed, even such well-being is becoming more and more elusive as the old religious sanctions that disciplined it are forgotten or scrapped. As the human failures to achieve a tolerable sense of intelligent animal well-being become self-evidently more numerous, secularist mentors provide roundabout recipes for boosting self-confidence, for sharpening the responsiveness of the human antennae to what brings earthly satisfaction and pleasure, 
or for numbing the inner disquiet of the spirit. What they will not accept is that man is a creature of a different order, that he has dimensions of being which they fail to allow for, that their creed can never answer all the needs of men and women who by creation and vocation are destined for a supernatural end. Well, secularism then can be defined only as a series of exclusions. God, religion, so on. A series of exclusions scarcely constitutes a philosophy. We need to make clear that insofar as secularism is a thought-out position as opposed to an ad attitude adopted unthinkingly, it is based on the philosophy of naturalism. Naturalism is the creed implicit and sometimes explicit in present-day secularism. Naturalism, the belief that the only reality is to be found within this universe governed by those laws of nature which our scientists explore. Christianity, on the other hand, is a religion rooted in the supernatural, in that which is superior to the natural order, that to which the natural order, in which the natural order was grounded, that within which the natural order subsists. That, of course, is only an abstract philosophical way of saying that the Christian sees human life and human history held in the hands of God. He sees the whole universe sustained by God's power and love. He sees the natural order as dependent upon the supernatural order, time as contained within eternity. <coughs> he sees this life in time as an inconclusive experience preparing us for another. This world is a temporary place of refuge, not our true and final home. Here lies the basic philosophical cleavage between the Christian mind and the popular assumptions behind so much contemporary thought and action. Naturalism treats this temporal universe of ours as the whole show, the only sure basis of knowledge, the only reliable source of meaning and value. This is the tacit creed of contemporary secularism. This is the unexamined presupposition at large in the very air we breathe as thinking beings. The average citizen nowadays is a victim of daily, hourly brainwashing by the media, the press, the radio, television, the adverts, and so much else in our cultural environment that is hammering into his head the notion that this life in time is the only thing that matters that all questions of meaning, value, purpose, good and evil are exclusively a matter of a 70-year lifespan on this planet. You don't have to keep on saying this explicitly in order to convey it. All you have to do is to provide a ceaseless flood of entertainment, news, discussion, comment, which bypasses all questions of spiritual reality and ignores even the possibility of supernatural life. There are exceptions, of course, but by and large, 
our radio and television do not present either in the form of drama or in the form of observation or discussion a living commentary upon life which takes the Christian God and the life hereafter seriously into account. So, the basic collision is between a naturalistic philosophy and a religion rooted in the supernatural. It is this exclusive blinked rootedness of the secularist mind in the untranscended things of earth that provoke the violent clash with the Christian mind. This is true at all levels of thought and action, from the scholarly level at which orthodox theologians collide with diluters and enemies of the faith, to the popular level at which the glossy magazine version of life closes the mind to the Christian account of the human situation. The collision is indeed a violent one. On the one hand is the assumption that all is over when you die, that with any luck after 60 or 70 years sheltered and cushioned by the modern technological society with wall-to-wall welfare protection against suffering and unease, you can sign off for good. That eating, sleeping, breeding and the rest constitute the total sum of things. That in worldly prosperity and well-being in the years between vaccination and superannuation lies, or I should say cremation, I suppose, lies the only source of all value and meaning. On the other hand, is the belief that our life in time is a brief transitory passage to eternity, and that our task en route is to bring our fellow beings into the company and keeping of the God who made them, visited them, and died for them. The belief that men and women will be called to account for the part they have played in a world caught up as it is in cosmic conflict between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. Well, there can surely be no honest compromise or final motivation between those who believe that the finite system we inhabit from the cradle to the grave is the total sum of things, and those who hold that we are pilgrims of eternity making a brief journey through time, and that everything in this life that deeply matters points elsewhere. For the secularist, death is the end, this world is opaque. For the Christian, death is the beginning and this world is open to the eternal. The more thoughtful the Christian is, the more sensitive he will be to the almost crushing pressure of the spiritual war that is tearing at the heart of the universe, pushing its way into the day-to-day -day choices and decisions of every living soul. So, for the Christian life, a matter of salvation or damnation, a matter of living in a fallen world, but a redeemed world. Of inheriting a fallen nature, but a divinely redeemed nature. Of being thrust thus into the great drama of conflict between the powers of good and evil. The more you explore the issue, the wider the gulf yawns between Christian and secularist presuppositions. Since the Christian sees the whole of human life and human history enacted under God. That is what the Bible is all about, and that is the framework
within which the Christian makes his estimate of all purpose and meaning down to the merest detail of act and thought. Well, it is in these details that the collision of mentalities impinges daily on each one of us in confronting the secularist mindset. And I shall have a good deal to say about these details in, in my second talk. But let me take some. Our basic vocabulary fails as a means of communication with the secularist. For instance, in current secularist usage, words like aim, purpose, cause, result, even good and evil, have to do with events that take place exclusively within history. While the Christian can scarcely speak seriously of purpose at all, let alone of good or evil, without introducing a supernatural dimension. Both concepts, Christianly used, outreach finite objectives. For all human purpose is related to divine purpose or to diabolical purpose. There is no Christian statement about any fundamental issue of meaning or purpose that can be adequately articulated without explicit or implicit reference to a state of being beyond time, a state of being which secularism on principle ignores. In the last resort, the will of God is the only ground basis of action we know, the grace of God the only energizing impetus we know, the service of God the only ultimate end we know. How can we come to terms with those who criti whose criteria and values disregard such essentials and, de and indeed whose notional and verbal equipment is specifically devised to contain the facts of human destiny and the meaning of life within the framework of time-locked natu naturalism? Well, uh, the situation is not new, I suppose. Only a fortnight ago, or was it three weeks ago, I heard a, a sermon to which, in which our present lot was being compared with that of St. Augustine. St. Augustine um, was the fall of Rome to Alaric in 410 AD was the impulse which set Augustine to work on the 22 books of his De Civitate Dei, the City of God, Augustine saw the Roman Empire collapsing round, collapsing round him, set about proclaiming the immutability and stability of that heavenly city which has truth for its king, love for its law, and eternity for its measure. I suppose for no writer in Christian history was the distinction between the Christian and the secular, the city of God and the city of this world, more agonizingly real. Perhaps our problems are not dissimilar. The barbarians had taken Augustine's imperial capital and the barbarians have taken over commanding metropolitan positions in our society, in our press, our broadcasting companies, our schools, our governments. Civilization is based on authority and order, peace and restraint, virtue and self-discipline. Insofar as influential uh, influential positions in our social system are taken over by the apostles of anarchic self-assertiveness and self-opinionatedness, of clamor and disorder and conflict and permissiveness, 
they are taken over by anti-civilizational agencies, where authority and discipline are replaced by the anarchy of license, whether it's intellectual, emotional, or physical, power falls into the hands of the barbarians. I mean, we have today at our disposal some of the most potent mind-molding instruments ever devised by man. Can we pretend that, by and large, they are used to recommend the life of virtue and self-discipline? It's not just a question of what is urged upon the young in our educational institutions as a pattern of the good life at a time when eccentric and immoral ideals of human integrity are widely canvassed among the intelligentsia. It's also a question of what models of satisfaction and self-fulfillment are set before us as we imbibe what is presented to us by the media and the advertisers. The necessary function of advertising is transmitting information about what's available in the way of commodities, amenities and so on, and it can't be performed in an ideological vacuum. You can't announce that bread is for sale without implying that bread is worth having. The presentation of information about goods and amenities can't be insulated from qualifying undercurrents of approval or depreciation. In the same way, the reflection of contemporary life in entertainment and documentation can't be insulated from evaluative overtones that recommend or denigrate. Thus, an image of the good life is conveyed to us by the advertisers and the media, and according to the measure of our intellectual and our spiritual resources, we accept it or we reject it. No Christian exhortation or admonishment today can afford to ignore the media, for Christian teaching has to insist upon a set of values clean contrary to those currently in vogue in the media world which sets the standard of people's thinking. Um, notice what I've just said, that the media world sets the standard of people's thinking. Um, reflect what it means. If the media world set the standard for people's thought and behavior, then the media have become their authority for thought and behavior. That is what has happened, ironically enough. Christians, educationists, have been lifting up their hands in horror and saying, oh, no, 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 we must not assert authority any longer. We can't do with that kind of thing in our democratic age and while Christians and school teachers have been talking like that the media men have quietly substituted a new authority which I should prefer to call anti-authority because it asserts the negative pseudo standards of worldliness and permissiveness habits of thought and behavior have been adjusted to match a presentation of life as a sensual free for all from which moral imperatives have been shot away and spiritual reality banished well, the presence of barbarism at the heart of our polity, threading its venomous way through the veins of our culture, gives our situation some comparability with St. Augustine's. He himself saw all human relationships as properly sustained and sustainable only on the basis of the relationships of all men to God. And that, of course, is the only possible Christian view of human relationships. They are not right by virtue of some delicately negotiated interpatterning per se. They are right by virtue of the preeminent relationship of all men to God. In short, there is no such thing as universal brotherhood except within the context of a common fatherhood. Remove righteousness and what 
are kingdoms but great bands of brigands, Augustine asks. And of course for him righteousness carries a wholly God-centered connotation. Well, you might consider that bands of brigands is not a bad description of modern democratic societies where <laughs> power groups entirely devoid of ethical principles sack and pillage the minds and hearts and pockets of their fellows. What are some of the great industrial combines, the organs of the press, broadcasting, television, filmmakers, presenters, advertisers, credit financiers, the corruptors of youth, whether in school or out of school? What are they but bands of brigands? St. Augustine has an apt little parable describing an encounter between a captured pirate and his captor, Alexander of Macedon. How dare you molest the seas, the pirate was asked. How dare you molest the whole world, he countered. I do it with a little ship and I'm called a pirate. You do it with a great navy and you're called an emperor. <laughs> How dare you corrupt a young child, asked the Lord today of the rested pervert. And how dare you corrupt an entire generation, he might ask in reply of the national establishment that condemns him. I do it on a small scale in my bedroom and it's called criminality. You do it with all the machinery of film, television, press, advertisements and schools, battering it a million hearts and homes, and it's called communication or education. <laughs> We might twist the parable a little further. There are threats which on the small private scale amount to criminal blackmail, but on the large public scale, they could be called industrial action or political pressure. Well, evil acts do not become virtuous by being practiced on the institutional instead of on the individual level. There seems to be an assumption abroad that if enough people support a given act, then that support confers virtue on the act. Individual leverage exercise for selfish ends is seen as wicked and greedy, while mass leverage exercise for selfish ends is viewed as healthily democratic. There's a crude illogicality to be corrected. Corrupting the young doesn't cease to be corruption just because millions of votes corroborate the practice. There's no magic about mass approval, even when expressed through the ballot box. Righteousness cannot be guaranteed to top the pole. Yet as Christians we know that St. Augustine is right. But without righteousness human society is reduced to brigandage. Well my talks today are essentially concerned with various aspects of the collision between Christian teaching and the philosophy of naturalism. Um, I think I'll just take up one um, aspect of the others to be taken up this afternoon in, in, in my concluding section. One aspect of this um, collision, um, I, I've already said the most negative aspect of naturalism is simply <coughs> that it discounts the supernatural. It assumes that this world registered by our senses is all that is, rejects the notion of an eternal order that might impinge upon us. Well, Christian teaching, of course, sees the natural world and human affairs interpenetrated by what lies beyond time. The personal challenge of Christianity is the call to baptism, regeneration, grace, repentance, self-surrender. You can't, none of those words, each of those words, crucial terms, brings one's face to face with the supernatural. Baptism is from above, regeneration, rebirth into the life of the Spirit, grace, the gift of God. You can't Talk in Christian terms without perpetual reference to the su supernatural. 
Well, I'm going to point out to define it to one consequence in popular thinking of losing all sense of the supernatural. The Christian, you see, finds the ultimate meaning of things outside time, for you and me. The Christian revelation makes sense of all history, all experience. We've been told out to what model men and women were fashioned, what demands are made of them, how they'll be brought to account. In short, the great drama of creation, the fall, redemption and salvation is something which for us overarches all human experience to give meaning to our days. We know that there is or should be no point at which the will of God is not relevant uh, to what we are doing. This is the unifying factor in our lives, giving purpose and coherence where otherwise they'd only be the jungle. Now, where can those turn in search of meaning, purpose, and coherence for whom all this is an idle dream? Can you mentally step out of your theological skin, throw off any sense of life's structured purposefulness under God, and look out on things as a pure secularist sees them? If I try, I find that things tend to fall apart. There's a kind of fragmentation, nothing to provide a meaningful linkage between the diverse activities of life. The only link I can find is that I personally partake in all of them. In other words, if no meaning can be found out there in the objective scheme of things, it must be sought in me, the individual. So is it to be wondered at then? This drift of thinking in the post-Christian world which tries to locate whatever principle of unity life may have in the person of the experiencing subject. And is it surprising that we hear all this shallow talk about people trying to find themselves, to discover who they really are, to find their identity and all the rest of it. The thing that sheds light for me on this issue is an analogy from literature which I, I think I'll share with you. Um, I spoke of the drama of creation for redemption, salvation. Drama is a useful word. It suggests a design in which we must play our parts well. But life today is conceived not so much as a drama, but in my picture of things, rather as the 18th century novelist pictured it, Defoe and Smollett, if you've ever read them, tended to picture uh, um, life as just the experience of the hero. There's no shape, no pattern to it. There's just the continuing presence of the hero or heroine persisting through all manner of diverse experiences. The only thing that makes the book hang together is that the hero lives through everything. He or she is the only principle of unity. The other characters float in and out. These belong to the hero's early days. As he grows older, they disappear from the book. These belong to his university days, and when he sets off on his foreign travel, these disappear from the book. These belong to the days of his continental tour, and when he returns home, they disappear from the book. So the hero continues in what is called the picaresque novel recording the hero's doings and treating all other people as of no account, except insofar as they impinge on his career. Is the course of human life like that? A, a picaresque novel in which the only principle of unity for, uh, for me is me and for you is you. Or is it more like a play? 
planned and shaped by a dramatist who locks characters together in a pattern of action. Not exactly, of course, because he gave his characters free will. A long time ago, I met an aging woman who had retired from life on the stage. For many years, she'd actually performed leading roles in the old Doily Cart Opera Company. And if anyone talked to her about Gilbert's Sullivan operas and mentioned any aria or ensemble, she would very often reply, I'm sorry, I don't know that bit. I was always off stage for that. But I could never make up my mind whether she was just teasing people to save herself the trouble of boring conversation. But she said it as though she meant it. Uh, but we may doubt whether it would be possible for to learn and rehearse and perform the part of Yum Yum, say, and not know the tune sung by the Lord High Executioner when, when she's off stage. It struck me anyway as a, an indication of how unreal our picture of what we're involved in will be if we see the whole thing revolving around our personal contribution. I was reminded of this a couple of years ago when I saw a performance of... Uh, Vanbrus play The Provoked Wife, restoration comedy with a, a very complicated plot which um, re um, requires some doubling of parts unless you've got an immense cast. And, and in this performance I saw one versatile young actor function successively as a singing master, a roistering gentleman, a justice of the peace and a valet de chambre well, I asked myself what sense Vambra's play would have made for him had he known nothing of what happened on stage between his various appearances. Suppose he'd built his conception of the whole thing by assembling together the fragments of action to which he was involved. Suppose he'd regarded his personal role as the essential principle of you. Well, I'm suggesting that that's the way we tend to look at life nowadays. Too ready to find the total meaning in our own little private collection of um, roles. And indeed, it's only too easy to be totally preoccupied today as whatever you are, a bureaucrat in the office, a husband, a father, a gardener, a golfer, a political activist, a conservationist, a member of the parent-teacher association and so on, um, not to mention... Um, a taxpayer and uh, a car owner. Well, you see what I'm getting at. The weakening of Christian consciousness in our civilization has caused a fragmentation of um, human interests and concerns. Too often we can find no principle of integration in life except what we can derive from our own individual course through it. Yet the Christian should be aware that he's taking part in a human drama which God initiated and which he will wind up. The Christian revelation is stamped with the impress of divine purpose. When you study the account of creation given in Genesis, you'll be struck by the sheer orderliness of the process. The creator stamps it all with the mark of the designer's hand. Nothing random, nothing chancy. We're not told that one day God breathed upon the formless void and lo, there emerged a viscid, semi-fluid, semi-transparent substance, the protoplasm, and God said, from the elements thus varyingly mixed in this unstable combination, let vital properties emerge such that millions of years hence, 
if the one in a million chance occurs, something <laughs> may one day achieve vegetable, nay, animal existence, and if perchance millions of years later still, some hungry creatures should spend long hours stretching their necks upwards to feed on foliage well nigh out of their reach, let their efforts be rewarded by the genetic specification for the lengthening of necks. In brief, should such a remarkable series of coincidences occur, let there be giraffes. <laughs> there's, there's nothing vague or casual about the biblical account of creation. Nothing to suggest a massive historical role for the fortuitous. No, the book of Genesis gives us a picture of creation as a planned, orderly, organized process. Sky, land, sea, made vegetable life design to produce fruit, growth, birds and fish and so on. The whole procedure is thought out and, and orderly. Well, and this point is not made in order to contrast the theory of evolution with the biblical account of creation as though the two were parallel competing scientific explanations. It doesn't have to argue about that, I believe, nowadays. Somewhere I read that Fred Hoyle, anyway, had established that the doctrine of evolution was statistically unacceptable since the degree of probability, I believe, relied upon for its acceptance is the same degree of probability as might cause a whirlwind blowing through a scrapyard to construct a jumbo jet. <laughs> <laughs> That's, by the way, as I say. I have a different point to make. I have this different point to make. I'm nearly finished. Evolutionary thinking encourages an outlook upon life which emphasizes the role of chance by doing so. It weakens our sense of the ultimate purposefulness of the universe we inhabit. And it discourages that awareness of the unity of design embracing ourselves and our world, which Christian teaching insists upon. The Christian world is a world in which things fit together, belong together. The doctrine of divine creation emphasizes what, what we look out upon, whether it's stars and comets, mountains and rivers, men and women and children, it is purpose-built. In belonging to it, we belong to a system. We might almost say an institution. We are not all cast abroad, lonely and isolated, to fumble around for a role and an aim in an alien environment produced by evolutionary accident. It is the lack of Christian understanding of the world we live in that causes people to lament that they do not belong. They are seeking an identity. We all belong. I think I'll just end by quoting um, an old um, sermon which perhaps um, of, of um, John Donne, um, rather apposite at this point, you see. What, what I'm concerned with is the fact that the Christian moves from the immediate and the local to this great sense of the drama which embraces all things, this great cosmic drama. And I'm going to just um, quote a sermon preached by um, Don, John Donne before King James at Whitehall in 1625, just to show the kind of process, in a kind of extreme form, moving from the immediate and the local to the, the whole sweep of universal history. He, he took up a current complaint that land was fetching a poor price. Wasn't land always cheap, he asked. How cheaply did Adam sell the Garden of Eden? 
and a very de desirable estate that was, if ever there was one. How cheaply did Adam sell the human race? What price did he ask in, in selling immortality? Well, he takes great pains to emphasize what the sale of eternity amounted to. What's the value of a country manor, of a county, a kingdom, or the whole world compared to what we sell when we trade our souls, our consciences, our future immortality in exchange for a few grains of earthly dust, which is all that we can possess here? We decry a man who sells a town or an army to the enemy, but, en but Adam sold the whole world and its inhabitants. Including Abram and Isaac, Peter and Paul, evangelists and apostles, they were all sold by Adam, sold the whole race in advance, even sold the Virgin Mary herself. Indeed, had not Christ been sinlessly conceived, he too would have been bartered away in advance. Well, Adam didn't spare his congregation. It pictures sinners selling themselves into the world, devil's hands by, by their worldliness and lust. And he warns people against thinking they can wipe out the massive debt at the last moment before they die. A pirate can bring home his ill-gotten gains and bribe his way to a pardon, but you can't bribe God at the end by endowing a hospital on your deathbed. Well, I'm just quoting this sermon to suggest that in the 20th century, I'm not su suggesting that in the 20th century we can talk exactly like this, but it is a fit model in this sense, that it shows how quickly the sensitive Christian will move between events here and now and the great cosmic drama within which the human story is contained. Don relates his people's immediate situation to the whole sweep of human history from creation to judgment. It would be impossible for a member of Don's congregation to leave the chapel wishing he could belong. It is all too evident that he does belong. It would be impossible for a member of Don's congregation to leave the chapel and muse on his lack of identity. His identity has been all too clearly defined. Well, allowing for the entry of God at all points into human affairs turns the seemingly trivial into the momentous, the seemingly ephemeral into the lastingly meaningful. The Christian mind, transformed in alertness to God's purposes, finds itself overwhelmed by the sheer comprehensiveness of the cosmic struggle in which we are caught up every day. It is by contrast with this that Intellectually speaking, the secularist alternative to Christianity seems to me to involve opting for sustained triviality. Thank you.